It's Monday, November 19th, 2018. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, this is our weekly Monday Bible study and call to prayer. Today, we are continuing our study on the book of Acts, and we are joined by Jason Sampler, our Georgia State Director, and he will walk us through Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. Last week in staff Bible study, we learned in Acts chapter 3 that Peter had healed a lame man at the temple. And the miracle produced quite a crowd around Peter and John, because they were amazed that the beggar could now walk. And Peter and John begin preaching to this crowd, reminding and instructing them that God was in Christ, seeking to reconcile the world, and especially the children of Abraham to himself. And chapter 4 is a direct continuation of chapter 3, but the story shifts. What we see in chapter 4 is the first instance in the New Testament of persecution to Christianity by Jews. The picture up to this point had been one of acceptance and favor. For instance, remember in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, the scriptures say, quote, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, end quote. But this changes in Acts 4. Now, the general population still seems to find favor with Christianity, and they're interested in hearing this message of Jesus. But Jewish leaders begin to turn against the apostles. And Peter and John were speaking uh, uh, at the temple, and the authorities, specifically a group of priests, the captain of the temple, and a group of Sadducees, uh, the Bible says, quote, came upon them. The language there is meant to invoke fear. It means to come suddenly or to descend upon. Maybe picture a snowball gathering steam and getting bigger as it goes down a hill, and it's going to overtake anything in its path. And that's the idea that this, this group of religious leaders was descending upon Peter and John to overtake them. And the primary foe in this story is the Sadducean aristocracy. For Christians were a serious threat to their status quo as the group in power. And how do we know this? Well, look at verse 2. The scripture says that the group coming upon Peter and John were, quote, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, why is this so annoying? Well, if you understand who the Sadducees are, then you get a better idea. There were three primary religious groups during Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And the Sadducees were the most conservative of the three groups, religiously speaking. They rejected oral tradition or oral teachings. They only followed the first five books of the Old Testament or the Torah. They rejected the idea of angels and demons. They didn't believe in the immortality of the body and the soul or of the concept of resurrection from the dead. They believed that when you died, that's all there was to life. And the Sadducees were generally the richest of the Jewish, Jewish groups under Rome's occupation. They had the most land. 
They had the most control, and most importantly, they were granted authority over the temple, the place revered most by Jews. And the Sadducees, in order to have this control, had made peace with Rome. And so they were able to keep their land and their power. And their highest goal was to continue to maintain peace in Israel. Because if they were able to keep peace, then they would stay on Rome's good side. And if they were on Rome's good side, they could maintain their power. And so why are they troubled by Peter and John? We'll look at verse 2 again. It's not that Peter and John are preaching about Jesus' resurrection. That would be one thing. There had been stories of this man who had been raised back to life and many people believed. But that's not what Peter and John are preaching. Instead, look closely at the words, quote, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, end quote. That is, those who are found in Jesus will also be resurrected. It's one thing to proclaim the resurrection of one person, but it's a whole other thing to proclaim that anybody in Jesus will also be resurrected. And resurrection has this apocalyptic and messianic overtone. The dead are raised on the last day. And here are Peter and John preaching about resurrection. And to the ears of the Sadducees, this is a message of revolt over Rome and the idea that the Davidic kingdom will be restored, which means that the Sadducees will be thrown off of their power and their kingdom. And so at the first opportunity, the Sadducees try to nip in the bud this preaching of resurrection. And they, they descend upon Peter and John and they uh, arrest them or they detain them in verse 3. Um, and, but the Sanhedrin court, the temple court, had already met that day. So they couldn't be tried that day. So they held them overnight um, and so that the trial would be the next day for it was already evening. But look at the result of their preaching. While John and Peter were taken by the authorities, verse 4 tells us, quote, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. I think this is an important lesson for us to remember. Sometimes temporary experiences do not reveal eternal outcomes. Despite adversity, Peter and John's sermon was not a failure. Their experience was that they were remanded to jail. But the crowd's experience was that many of them were regenerated to, to new life. And so as we consider the progression of the early church, we should celebrate. Remember in Acts 1.15, we know that there are 120 Jesus followers. And by Acts 2.41, there are 3,000 followers. And by chapter 4, verse 4, now there are 5,000 followers. And as we get towards the end of Acts, Luke tells us in Acts 21.21 that there are many thousand who believe. And so the story goes on to tell, beginning in verse 5, of the events that transpire the next day. The rulers typically would sit in a semicircle in a room, and the accused would be put uh, in the midst or in the middle uh, so that, so that the, the judges, the, the, the court, could investigate. And the high priest would lead the investigation. And we see in verse 7, he asks, By what power or by what name did you do this? 
but um, note that they're not necessarily interested in or asking about the miracle of healing the lame uh, beggar. Remember, Luke has already told us why they are upset. Verse 2 says, quote, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they're asking, well, un under what name or what authority did you have these teachings? And so Peter never misses an opportunity to point people to Jesus, and he launches into this mini-sermon. And they ask for a name. They want a name. By what name do you do this? And Peter is happy to tell them it's Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we've done this. But he doesn't simply just call out a name or give a defense or a justification. He goes further, um, which is interesting because uh, I've noticed that when most people get caught doing something, something that they're not supposed to do or something they'll get in trouble for, um, if they're asked to give an account, they'll make an excuse. My children are notorious for this. It's usually something like, uh, I didn't do it, or my brother made me do it, or he started it, or it's not my fault. But that's not how Peter handles this situation. He's asked to give an account for his actions, and instead of making excuses, he proclaims the authority of Jesus. They ask, by what authority are you doing these things and teaching these things? And he responds, if you read between the lines, by asking them, how long are they going to keep rejecting this authority? They want to know, who are you doing this under the authority of? And he tells them Jesus and then says, when are you going to start following this authority? Look, uh, beginning in verse 10, uh, uh, Peter says, quote, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And in these three verses, we see the core message of Christianity from the very beginning of the church. That Jesus was crucified, that Jesus was resurrected, and that Jesus is the only means of salvation. And, uh, and the world in Peter and John's day... And our world today doesn't like that message. They say it's intolerant. They say it's unloving. But we know that's not true. There's nothing more loving than pointing people to Jesus. And Peter is very clear that healing comes only through Jesus. There's a play on words in the original language of the New Testament that doesn't translate into English. But look at verse 9. The word uh, that, that we see translated as healed... When, when Peter's talking about the lame man, is the same word that Peter uses in verse 12 that's translated as saved. That is, in the name of Jesus, true healing takes place, both physically, in the case of the, the lame man, and spiritually, in the case of any man who calls on the name of Jesus. One commentator says it this way, quote, Salvation was the supreme concern of this prince of the apostles. Salvation is found exclusively in Christ and no one else, and it is an imperative need for sinful men. They must be saved. 
what had happened to the physical condition of the cripple in that he had been made whole, or literally the word was saved, was a parable for the healing of the whole man by the power of Christ. In your sin, you are helpless in the sight of God as that lame man. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. Only Jesus can heal. You and I need to believe and place all of our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior. And look at the response of the rulers, beginning in verse 13. Luke uses this word astonished. Uh, they are astonished at what they hear from Peter. And don't miss the irony. The accused, John and Peter, they are the uneducated ones. They are the ones in a strange and unfamiliar setting. Yet when they are questioned, their answers are bold. But the rulers, the educated ones, the powerful ones, the ones sitting in the seat of authority, after hearing Peter's sermon, sit in cold silence, unsure what to say or what to do. They are baffled and caught off guard. And there's this telling phrase in verse 13. It's almost an aside uh, that grips me every time I read it. Luke just casually slips it in. It's not major to the narrative, but, but it hits me between the eyes like a two by four. Look what he says, that the rulers, uh, after hearing Peter, it says, quote, and they recognized that they, uh, Peter and John, that they had been with Jesus. And every time I read that passage, I always reflect and wonder, is this what other people think about me when they interact with me? Is this what they think about you when they interact with you? Do they come away from conversations saying, that person has been with Jesus? And I'm afraid more often than not, that's not uh, uh, how, how people walk away uh, from me. And I'm convicted that in my conversations and in my demeanor, um, I don't put off a more, as Paul says, a sweet aroma uh, of God. And so um, verse 16 tells us that uh, they sent Peter and John and the healed beggar out of the room so they can confer, and they, they're at a loss at what to do. They say, what shall we do with these men? They wanted to punish them, but they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the crowd who had seen the, the results of the miracle and had believed in Peter and John's preaching. So they decide to reprimand Peter and John, and they forbid them from speaking about Jesus anymore, which I think uh, is very funny. Um, uh, forbidding apostles from preaching about Jesus is like for, forbidding my, my children from disobeying. That's just a part of their nature. What a foolish thing to do to tell the apostles not to preach about Jesus. And John and Peter are, are, are quick to reject or rebuke such a directive. Look at verse 19. Peter says, Quote, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. End quote. And so testifying of Jesus is what they had been doing since the resurrection. And they weren't going to stop now because a, a, a couple of Jewish leaders were telling them. They had seen personally and physically that God has the power to overcome death. They had seen Jesus in his resurrected body, and they were not afraid of the Sanhedrin. And despite multiple threats from these rulers, Peter and John were released, 
and they were left unpunished. And Luke says, quote, it was because all of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, end quote. And I, I, I think about this part of the passage. I'm 42, and I can't imagine. I've, I've lived a pretty healthy life, um, but I can't imagine suffering from an ailment my entire life from birth, say, being lame or, or being blind. And out of nowhere, one day, uh, some people that I had never met before come up and heal me of my affliction at the age of 42. I, I am confident that for the rest of my life, I would be uh, proclaiming and jumping up and down and rejoicing in, my, in, in, in the healing from my suffering. And that's exactly what this man did, jumped up and down and celebrated, and he was excited. And the crowd couldn't help but be excited, and the people rejoice because they see a lame man who now is walking. They see a sad beggar who is now rejoicing, and Luke calls the healing of this man a sign, a sign that leads to gospel proclamation. And this is, I think, precisely what adoption is also. It is a sign of love that can lead to gospel discussions with others if we let it. Uh, I am the father of a multicultural family. My wife and I, we um, are finishing up our third adoption. And, uh, and there are many occasions where uh, strangers will come up to us and just ask um, either uh, just silly questions, or sometimes they're just mean questions about why we would adopt children that aren't the same color as we are. And I have a choice. I can uh, I can get angry and lash out, um, or I can use this as a as a conversation starter, as a means of declaring God's love for us in Jesus. And so, for those of us that have adopted, it, it's a it's it's a sign that can point people to God's love and point them to a, a, a message of reconciliation. And the passage concludes with Peter and John uh, joining back with other believers to tell of their arrest and of how they were released. And how do the believers respond? They respond in prayer. And look closely at the prayer. It is beautiful. Look in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And this prayer, in essence, I think, is an overview of all of history. They are praying to the Creator God who makes heaven and makes the earth and the sea. This is the God who is in charge over all of the governments 
And oftentimes, uh, governments have different agendas than God has, and the world plots to overthrow God's plan, but uh, their plans are in vain. Believers, uh, Jesus followers, proclaim with boldness the gospel of salvation, and God responds by healing and performing signs for his glory. And so what's the takeaway here? I think um, all planning against God is in vain because God has determined the outcome already. Despite all the raging of humanity, of government, of, 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 of those that are opposed to God, God's purposes will prevail. They prevailed with Jesus. They prevailed. God's, God's purposes prevailed with the apostles before the Sanhedrin. And God's purposes will prevail with you also. If you are walking through the adoption process and the journey is taking long, God's will will prevail. If you are, are, are concerned about uh, funding and unsure how you're going to uh, 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 take care of all of the expenses, God's uh, um, purposes will prevail. Look at verse 29. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They didn't ask for deliverance. They didn't ask for safety. They didn't ask for the Lord's will to be done or for a hedge of protection to be put around them. They asked for courage and boldness to proclaim the gospel. And what was the result? The building that they were in shook and everyone was reminded that God was with them. And Christian, let me remind and encourage you that in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, God is at work and with you despite your circumstances, despite your trials. May God be glorified in you. Well, this week we are praying for the country of Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan has 6 million people and 88% of the people practice Islam. Pray for the Kyrg church that they would be strengthened and that the gospel would multiply throughout the country. We're praying for leaders to rise up in this country, that they will assist in the furtherance of the gospel, as well as better care for vulnerable children. We have completed five adoptions from Kyrgyzstan, and three more families are in the process of completing their adoption. Please pray for these families who feel called to adopt children five years and older, that the, the Lord would just give them uh, preparation and wisdom. Pray for the three active families that are in this process and for open doors to continue for our unadopted ministry. Uh, we are waiting on a partnership to open up with, with some of the orphanages and a baby home. Pray for the ministry that they will continue to find favor with our paperwork and they will work hard to make it a priority to get children ready for referrals. Pray for Jalene, uh, our team member on the ground in Kyrgyzstan, that he will continue to build strong relationships with the ministry and with orphanage directors and doctors. And pray that he will continue to find favor as he upholds strong ethical standards. And pray that the Lord will lead us to orphanages and churches and individuals we can partner with. And we praise the Lord for our team members on the ground, for Sasha, for Jalene, and the work that they do to serve our families. And we praise the Lord for our Lifeline team uh, back here in the States, for Josh and for Jana and for Brianna and Toria. 
as they serve uh, family stateside. And, and we just uh, continue to praise the Lord for Jalene and pray that he continues to hear the gospel from our families and that he will understand what that means. And we continue to pray for his salvation. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to serve uh, children in Kyrgyzstan and for this country. We pray that the church would be strengthened and the gospel would multiply throughout this country. Uh, we ask that you would be with Kurg believers to have boldness and conviction to share your gospel and that, uh, that the gospel would spread. We pray for these families who've brought home these children, that they would be strengthened, that they'd be given wisdom, that they would have opportunities for discipleship among these children, and that you would just give them a vision for their family and for these children. We pray for these three families in the process, that you would give them peace, uh, that you would go with them, uh, that you go before them. And we thank you for uh, their continue uh, just faithfulness to this program. And Lord, we thank you for Jalene and pray that, you, that he would respond to your gospel, uh, that the gospel would take root in his life and make a difference, uh, and make a difference that only you can make. And we thank you for our team and pray for continued opportunities for unadopted in the country of Kyrgyzstan. And be with the children of Kyrgyzstan who are orphaned and who are vulnerable they may hear, see, and know the gospel, and that through gospel-driven justice that they would be given the help that they need. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel to you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again tomorrow for the Defender Podcast.